Okay, welcome everybody. It is wonderful to have you with us. I'm just going to fiddle with this. Bear with me one second. Wonderful. Uriah is just adjusting our camera angles. Try and make me look like the man in that menswear catalogue, if you can manage it. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, I don't look like... Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I don't think the Zoomers will really mind about that. Welcome, everybody. Um, it's great to have you with us. We're going to pray, and um, then we shall begin. So let's pray together. Merciful Father, thank you for this time that you've blessed us with, for all your goodness to us. We're very grateful, and we thank you for one another and for this evening of time set aside to reflect on your word, and we ask that you'd make it fruitful for us as we seek to live as Christ-like servants of one another and of you, our Heavenly Father. We pray that you'd help us to see the complexity of life as we experience it and make us more shrewd and wise and able to understand and live faithfully in the world that you've placed us in as we await the day when there will be no more frustration and pain and where there will be toil but not toil of the kind that we now experience of it. We experience it with the uh, frustration of its temporiness built into it. Bless us, we pray, and equip us to be thoughtful as we're reading your word and reflecting on it this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Um, we, I'm going to read verse, chapter 3, verse 16 to chapter 4, verse 16. Another ambitious attempt to... Uh, stick to a reasonably high pace of working through the Bible, like, yeah, whatever. Um, maybe we'll manage it. So, just a, a quick recap. What We've got one or two new, new or newer faces with us this evening. The book of Ecclesiastes wrestles with the 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 challenges and the pain of living in a world under the curse of sin and death. And so the opening couple of verses announces that everything is, well, vanity is the word. It's often found in our Bibles, but it, the word is hevel. It refers to mist, like fog. And what's distinctive about that is that though it's beautiful and it's wonderful, it's temporary and it disappears just like our lives are temporary and they disappear and they're full of frustration and um, you can't see very well through the mist, just like we can't always see very clearly through our lives. And so anyway, here we get to um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and, well, we'll see what the Lord has in store for us. Verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they are themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. 
They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upwards, and the spirit of a beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that the dead who were already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbour. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Um, <laughs> so, as though life weren't complicated enough, with all the, the stuff we've been wrestling with so far, we now introduce another layer of complexity. Wickedness, oppression, injustice. And I want to introduce this by telling you the story um, of a, well, a news article that I read in 2000, and, well, it refers to events in 2008. Uh, a young man called Aaron was jailed for armed robbery he held up a shot with a samurai sword, which is not allowed. Uh, and uh, so he was caught and he was imprisoned. He was quite young. I think he was early 20s. And one of the news articles that I read, it was really interesting because it, it tracked the story behind the scenes of Aaron's life. How did Aaron get to that point of you know, 
causing serious bodily harm by waving a three and a half foot long razor sharp weapon around in order to steal whatever it was, cigarettes and alcohol that he was after. And the story that was unfolded was truly heart-rending. Uh, Aaron's abiding memory of his father was of a violent drunkard. He, he remembers being chased around the house by his dad when he was a kid, trying desperately to protect his little brother from being beaten by his father, who was in a drunken fury. Uh, his father didn't stay around for long. Don't know what happened to him. Maybe he was jailed as well. But then he was raised by his mother. Well, initially raised by his mother. At the age of nine, he was taken by his mother to the social services office where he was dumped with a note attached that read, quote, I don't want him, unquote. And so they did what they normally do in England with situations like this. They, they'll try and find a relative who's willing in the first instance, to look after an unwanted child. And most of the other relatives weren't interested. The father was nowhere to be found. Several uncles had spent time in prison and therefore they were regarded as unsuitable. Eventually he was taken in by his grandmother, who proved a more stable influence. But stable in some ways, not in every way. He ended up in four schools in the next five years, just moving around from place to place. And the years passed and, you know, how wonderful a grandma can be you know, a, a young, growing lad needs other influences, positive influences, other men to model himself on, a, a peer group who will be, a, you know, good friends to him, not the wrong sort of person. And, of course, he found none of that. Uh, throughout his teenage years, he was surrounded by more and more criminals. The older lads at school um, did what they often do in those kinds of situations where, where the younger lad, Aaron, is keen to prove himself, and so they'll use him to prove himself to do stuff that probably he ought not to be doing. Uh, eventually, he joined a gang for the reason that most people join gangs, to protect themselves and also to find some kind of identity, some kind of family, when they've got none, basically. And a few years later, he committed the crime for which he was jailed, holding up the shot with the samurai sword. And so now you look at this man standing in the dock, receiving his sentence, and you... you you view him slightly differently, don't you? It's not, that he's any, it's not that he's done any less wrong. But what you see is the, the misery and the chaos behind the headlines. Um, and what's striking about it is he's an extreme example, I guess, of something which happens a very great deal. He hit the headlines because of the, the spectacularly awful way in which that period of his life ended with that violent crime. But all the ingredients of Aaron's life are scattered liberally around, in smaller doses, mercifully, all around us. In this sense, that Aaron is both a sinner and a victim. He is a victim of terrible, terrible circumstances. He's been shaped and harmed. You probably think, not irreparably, nothing is irreparable, but ineradicably by circumstances beyond his control. Anything can be fixed, but the scars always remain. And he's been harmed. 
And yet at the same time, he is wicked. I mean, just like evil. Uh, that wasn't the first crime he'd committed. Uh, it was the first big one that was caught. Um, and as you think back to that scenario, we're sort of torn, aren't we? Because on the one hand, you want to have sympathy for this young lad. Imagine him as a 12 or a 13-year-old or as a 9-year-old dumped in the rain outside social services with a post-it note saying that his own mother didn't want him. But then you imagine him aged 20-something standing over a cowering shopkeeper about to slice his, you know, whatever, arm, head off. Sinner and victim. And it's such a, uh, an iconic image because it so graphically depicts what so many of us are. In fact, all of us are. All around us, and we ourselves, are both victims of our circumstances and we are sinners in those circumstances. And, of course, the danger is we minimise one and maximise the other. And in our day and age, we will maximise the victim and minimise the sinner But that doesn't take away from the fact that we somehow have to wrestle with the reality of the victim as well. And Aaron's life strikes me as a terribly realistic and vivid portrayal of what we've got described in the reading from Ecclesiastes. Just look down at some of the verses we've just read um, and listen for the echoes Chapter 3, verse 16. In the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Right. Where, where ought a young man to be able to find justice? A, a righteousness. You know, his dad, for goodness sake. Um, in that place where his dad stood, stood wickedness. Or verse 18. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. They're like animals. Which, of course, is how he's behaved and how those around him have behaved. Chapter 4, verse 1. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. No one to comfort him, no one to hug him. I wonder if anybody ever hugged him until perhaps his grandmother. Chapter 4, verse 4. I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbour. And perhaps as I was reading that, you were thinking, is that really true? And of course, it's not true, literally true, in the sense that all toil that anybody ever does comes from envy. But this is wisdom literature. This is describing the world as it sometimes is, and inviting us to think, okay, when is the world like that? It's one of the features of wisdom literature, especially in the book of Proverbs, but also here. How it works is not so much prescriptive, although sometimes it is, but it's descriptive of how life sometimes is. And the, the, the process of reading and understanding the text is, is about trying to work out What are the circumstances in which this description is true? And how then should we respond to that? So what are the circumstances in which all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbour? Well, I'll tell you, I used to be a... I mentioned this before, I used to be a 
police uh, chaplain, the part-time chaplain, and I can tell you that all the toil and all the skill in um, the work, quote-unquote, of young gang members comes from rivalry. And uh, in, in North London, there are what are called postcode gangs, where they will just designate a particular postal district as their territory and then seek to encroach on the territory of those around them. And the borders are very, very well defined. You walk on the other side of that road, you're in the other gang's territory. And the attempts to push back the territory are attempts to self-aggrandize. They are almost primal, predatory. I want to take what somebody else has. All toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. That's the kind of situation it's talking about. Or chapter 4, verse 7. I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. There he is. Now, obviously, uh, languishing in a prison cell on his own. So that picture of life in Ecclesiastes 3 is... uh, graphically illustrated, I think, in Aaron. And the challenge for us is to try and figure out, well, what is this text showing us about the admittedly more muted expressions of the phenomena it describes in our own lives? I don't know anybody among us here who has quite that experience of Hevel. Um, Vanity missed. But I suspect that all of us here, if we thought long and hard and deeply about it, would be able to call to mind circumstances that we've known, maybe sort of secondhand or maybe firsthand, maybe we've actually been actively involved in them, in which the particular form of vanity or frustration that we've encountered has involved that combination of sinned against victim and sin in ourselves and it's related to the big picture of Ecclesiastes in in lots of different ways one way of course is just that that concrete image of um, mist mist is like darkness isn't it in a sense that it stops you perceiving things around you and think of the biblical depiction of darkness John 3, people love darkness, not light, because their deeds are evil. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, those who get drunk, when do they get drunk? They get drunk at night. When did Aaron's dad get drunk? At night. Uh, John 13, uh, a famous passage um, when uh, Jesus identified Judas as his betrayer, and then um, John remarks that Judas went out and it was night as though that explains everything. (laughs) Of course it does. Because night and mist are similar. If you're wrapped in mist, wrapped in hevel, you can't see. Like you're wrapped in darkness, you can't see. That horrendous crash that took place in February last year on 35, do you remember that? And I don't recall the precise circumstances, apart from the ice, obviously, so nobody could stop. But it was, was it dark and misty, if I recall rightly? February? 
it was it was early morning, yeah, and hundred and something cars and numerous fatalities and many many injuries and what happened was people couldn't see and so terrible things happened now was it all victim well there's lots of victim wasn't there but then as some commentators remarked for goodness sake there's an inch of ice on the roads what are you doing driving down i-35 at 40 50 60 miles an hour and you don't want to blame them in this kind of unadulterated way, but there's kind of wisdom, isn't there, in you know, stay off the roads or slow down. And it's very, very hard to disentangle the combination of victim and the extenuating circumstances involved there and sinner. And Aaron is, what would you do if you were sentencing? What are you supposed to do with a lad like that? I know what we should do. We should wind the clock all the way back and give to him loving parents. Like, how would we solve the hevel problem of humanity? Wind the clock all the way back to Adam and Eve and have them not fall. That would solve the problem, wouldn't it? You know? Because then you've, got, you've, you've dealt with... And you can't do that. That's not an option. We have to figure out how to live with it. And I, I was looking through this, and it strikes me that there are three kind of distinct scenes in view in this passage. And, and I want to just walk us through all of them, one at a time. And they each shed light from a different angle on this situation that arises when you've got Aaron, or some version of Aaron, victim and sinner. And it's the sinner element, the wickedness element that is introduced here for the first time really in significant ways in the book. And that's why at the end of the reading you all went and then laughed awkwardly, <laughs> nervous laugh, like good grief. Because it's, it's just, we've turned over another page and the, the scene has got darker. Are you with me? So basically, I, I guess what I'm seeing here, I'm seeing three scenes, like I said. Um, chapter 3, verse 16 Wickedness in the place of justice. The very place where you expect to find somebody doing good, you find somebody doing bad, right there. Um, towards the end of, uh, sorry, towards the beginning of um, chapter uh, four, the tears of the oppressed. There's a there's a change of scene. Instead of looking at this place where you should expect to find justice, you're now looking at the person who is the victim, the tears of the oppressed one. And then you've got at the end, you've got this picture of a man who's got no friends. A friendless man toiling alone. So, <laughs> what, what, what we've got to do, I think, is to walk through these um, portions of the Word of God and... Try and ask ourselves, why is the Lord showing us this? What is he wanting us to understand about the world? And how are we supposed to respond to it? You with me? Can you bear another um, 50 minutes of this? I think it will help us. It has to help us, obviously. It's in the word of God because we need it. Uh, Maybe we need it a lot, which is why we're sort of feeling the weight of it. We don't need a... We don't need a part of the Bible that tells us everything's fine. There is no 
part of the Bible that says everything's fine. Everything's messed up and we've been redeemed. That doesn't mean everything's fine. It means that we have to deal with the wickedness that's still in our hearts and around us. So let's just jump in, chapter 3, verse 16. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Why do you think that the writer, that Kohelet, Solomon, obviously we know it's Solomon. Why do you think he kind of emphasizes that? In the place of justice, in the place of righteousness, what's, what's he trying to communicate to us? Disappointed or shocked he was of all places. Yeah, yeah. The of all places. Well, there is no perfect justice. Right. Mm -hmm. There is no perfect justice, and so you kind of extend it, don't you? You you find yourself saying, on the one hand, you find egregious injustice right where you expect to find goodness and, and truth, and then. Even where the justice is present, it's imperfect. Um, you're going to say. I'm just going to say. I mean, we. I, I mean, I, in life, we see we see things happen. Mm-hmm. We go, where's the justice? Yeah, yeah. Where's the? You know, when is that going to be made right? That was so wrong. Yes. And it's not going to happen for us in our time. You know? Yes. Yes. It's actually one of the comforting, the surprising comforts of the doctrine of the last judgment. Um, there will be closure. So the, the, la- the last judgment is a, is a day of reckoning, you might say. And we can't even begin, I don't think, can we, to untangle like, the moral complexity of Aaron. God will untangle it. Just think about it for a second. On the last day, he will, with perfect wisdom and precision and righteousness and justice, untangle that which Aaron was responsible for from that which he was not responsible for. And we pray that Aaron would have been you know, going to the prison chapel in wherever he was and he'll discover that all the things that were his to deal with have been um, dealt with by Jesus. But it's important to get this straight, that the doctrine of the last judgment itself is actually a, a basis for... Uh, it takes things out of our hands and puts them somewhere where they will be dealt with properly. You know? Um, which... And the challenge, the challenge is we have to deal with the provisional character of our justice now. Like it's not fair. It'll still be not fair on the day you die. Yeah. Uh, the highest court in the land, Supreme Court, you know, has made terrible mistakes. Just think about that for a second. This is um, Larry Arn. President of Hillsdale College pointed out in a lecture, this is, he says, the only country in the world, in the whole of history, where they've had a, I can't remember how he put it exactly, but it's something along the lines of, we had a chance to start a country from scratch in peacetime and to figure out, okay, how do we want to do this? 
And they did. And here's the Constitution. And uh, now we've got these three branches of government. And this is going to be great. And they want George Washington to be king. And he says, no, no, that's a really bad idea. I'm not going to be your king. We should have presidents. I'm, I'm out of here. Two terms. See ya. Um, and now you've got the, supreme, the, the wisest, highest court in the land, the people who will fix all the mess and apply all the laws. And, it, and then they come up with Roe v. Wade or something ridiculous. And mercifully, it's only lasted 50 years. But still, 50 years is quite a long time. Quite a lot of injustice, can you see? And you find... yeah. Anybody ever found... Oh, I'm not to put words in your mouth. Are there, can you think of examples where you see this? Um, right at the point where somebody should be loving, right at the point where somebody should be upright, right at the point where they should be good, you find evil. Examples? Go on, Samuel. I see. Now, this could be a subject of debate, um, but I see it a lot in the education system, mm -hmm. like amongst the teachers. Teachers are generally supposed to uh, be a a source, a good example for mm -hmm. students, especially as they're learning. And nowadays, it's been twisted into a cynical scam. Yeah, yeah. There's a, at least a high degree of that. Yes. Um, and even people who, students who go in well-intentioned exactly. to, to places where they think, I'm going to get a good education here, they, they get something which is not. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's, not a, that's not the entire case, but yes. I can still see it. Well, I think the, thing, the place where it strikes me most forcibly is, is in family life, actually. Um, where par parents who abuse their own children. Yes. Like, where's, the, where's the place that a little 15-month-old ought to be able to feel completely safe? Like in dad's arms or mum's arms? And so Solomon is... Chapter 3, verse 16, he's, he's waking us up, isn't he, to the... If, when, if, if you were naive before, don't, don't leave naive. <laughs> um, the, there was a horrible case in, in England going back a number of years of... Uh, abuse in local authority children's homes. That's the place where kids get taken to when they've been abused by their parents to protect them from their parents. And, and children are being sexually and physically abused. Um, I, th I think of... Um, you know, there are places where you expect to get ripped off. You know, if, you, if you went to a bar, right, or a racetrack... And, if, if you went to a, a, a racetrack and asked to borrow some money from somebody and he said, well, yeah, I'll lend you some money, and you, you'd expect the interest rate to be rather high and to be enforced with uh, kneecap surgery, you know. But you don't expect banks to be guilty of malpractice. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you expect... You know, if you're, if you're at work, you expect there to be a certain amount of rivalry, perhaps, with your colleagues, don't you? You know, people at the same level, you're expecting that. But you don't expect betrayal from a spouse. You know what I mean? It's just, this is what makes Ecclesiastes so 
um, I, I said, described it when we first started this as, as the grittiest book in the Bible. There's the brutal honesty with which it confronts us. It's, yeah, Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where does Ecclesiastes tell us how to defend against it? Yeah, and, and how to prepare for I mean obviously he's outlining yeah. what happens and I think anybody yeah. explains why they were gonna have on it, but let's say I still had kids that I would teach people. How would I teach them in this book? Yes, yes, yes. So so there's a <laughs> can you defend yourself against being a sinner? Question one. Can you defend yourself against being a victim? Question two. Can, can you? Because there's two parts of the question, aren't there? Let's think about the sinner thing first. I mean, is it possible for you to, let's be pessimistic, sin just a little bit less? Yeah. Right? Yeah, obviously it is. Um, is it possible for you to just Always find the willpower at the moment when you need it to resist temptation. Yeah, no, no, of course not. I was talking with um, Tyler Turner, member at All Saints, just earlier today. We recorded a podcast, and it will come out in a couple of weeks' time. And, um, and it came about because he, I saw his phone. Have you seen Tyler Turner's phone? Go and ask to see his phone on Sunday. It's about this big. It looks like an old-fashioned cassette tape. It's hilarious. It's called a, what's it called? Light phone, thank you. Yeah, I was talking about it earlier. It's basically almost zero functioning. Um, and the reason is because he doesn't want a phone that can do all the things that your phone and mine can do. And you're thinking, why not? Go and find out. Listen to the podcast in a couple of weeks' time. But one of the things we got to talking about, um, I'll remember why I mentioned this story in a second. Oh, yes, was there's a whole bunch of, temptations that having the internet in your pocket presents you with. Now, here's the, th- here's the interesting thing. It occurred to me when I was talking to Tyler. At your strongest moments, I bet you could resist every single temptation that you've ever succumbed to at your weaker moments. You know what I mean? Like, when you've been angry with your kids, or when you've been lazy at work or where you've been uh, selfish in something or or the the huge temptation that the internet presents every young man and actually every young woman with, obviously. At at your strongest moments, you'd have the strength to resist that. But at your weakest moments, you don't. Obviously. And it's that lack of capacity to be strong that's a problem. Now, what, what's this got to do with, with um, sin and victimhood? Well, can you stop yourself from sinning? Well, yes, you can. There are things you can do. You, you could put in place, when you are stronger, measures to protect yourself when you are weaker. 
and you can easily see the form that those would take if you're just thinking about internet access. But I've talked to people about, for example, parents who find their kids frustrating. What can you do? So sometimes, sometimes what you need to do is to, you, know, you need to send them out of the room for your sake, so you can calm down and work out how to deal with whatever. Because otherwise, right at the place where they need to find justice, they'll find wickedness. You see what I'm saying? We, we can, to a certain extent, mitigate our sinfulness. Will we be able to eradicate it? Obviously not, right? And when we th- start thinking about victimhood, can you eradicate the sin of everybody else? Right, obviously. So, so here's the... Your question is really interesting, Tim, if you don't mind my, ask, my saying so, because... I don't, want to, don't take this the wrong way, but it's almost like the wrong question. Right, yeah, because Ecclesiastes isn't a book of answers. It's like, oh, here's the problem. Now, here's the solution. Ta-da! You're like, oh, great. Now life is simple. I've got rid of the hevel. Can, you see what I'm saying? And so you can see that, obviously. The, the point of Ecclesiastes is to say that this is to a certain extent, to a very great extent, simply unavoidable. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. And and yet at the same time, is where you, you then say, okay, we've got that in place, so we're in Christ. Safe in him on the last day. Yeah, but what about the next 54 years? What am I going to do now? The answer is, well, there are things you can do. But a lot of them come down to the perspective that you adopt with relation to the circumstances you're in. There there are safeguards we can undertake concerning our own sin, aren't there? But there's also, okay, I'm not going to be a victim. So not every kid whose dad was an alcoholic ended up as a samurai sword-wielding armed robber. Correct? So what do you want to say to 9-year-old or 12-year-old Aaron? You, you, you want to say, yes, obviously you have unspeakably terrible circumstances that you're living in. You don't have to be the victim. So you'd want to say that to Aaron, correct? Now, so what are you going to say to yourself? This is where it comes back to bite us, you see, because you haven't had, and I'm looking around at those of you who I know well enough to know this with reasonable certainty, um, you, it's not the people I'm not pointing to, it's not that I think you have had drunken axe-wielding fathers, but I don't know you well enough to be sure. But um, you and you and you and you and you and you certainly and you and... You guys, and I don't know about you, but I guess most of us, I can say with absolute certainty, your upbringing was far, far less traumatic than Aaron's. And we'd want to say to him, age nine, come on, buddy, you don't have to go this direction. It's what I wanted. I sat in a prison cell in, in London with a, a nine-year-old, a nine- or ten-year-old lad who'd basically been arrested because he was caught because he couldn't run as fast as the teenagers in the gang that he joined. I mean, it was, really was comical. And I was trying to say, listen, you don't have to go this way. And he's just like, mm, 
wouldn't look, wouldn't look at me, wouldn't look up. So we want to say that to him. So what do you want to say to yourself? What are the circumstances of which you are genuinely a victim? Think of them now. I'm not going to ask you to tell me because it will be too painful for you. What are the circumstances where you are actually a victim in it? And you think, truth be told, that bit is somebody else's fault. Can you think of anything? Can you? I can. It might not be even somebody else's moral fault. It might be just, you know, a parent died when you were very young. Or you, you lost your job and it came at a really tough time. Or you had some mental health struggles for some reason. Or you found a course you were doing at university far more difficult than you thought you would and you just didn't, didn't know what to do. You know, things, there are things outside of your control. You're a victim. Now, you just want it, you just, we all agreed that we'd all say to Aaron, who's chased around the house by a drunken father who wants to beat his little brother to death and he wants to protect him, come on, you don't have to be a victim. So now, I don't care what it is. You, you're not a victim. You're not. A, you're a Christian. Stop with the victim. Can you see how this co- is the change of perspective that we need to adopt? You cannot get rid of the objective fact of somebody else victimizing you. You can get rid of the subjective appropriation of that status. You can see the distinction, can't you? Um, so whatever it is about your circumstances, I'm dyslexic. I just lost my job. Um, my wife left me. I just lost my house. I, hmm? I'm left-handed. <laughs> whatever it is. You're left-handed. All the best people. My son's left-handed. David Field, my great, great friend, former fellow elder and mentor at seminary, is left-handed. All the best people. I don't think the Apostle Paul was left-handed. but Jonathan Edwards was probably both-handed. He could probably write with both hands. Well, whatever it is. You know Zulu boys? <laughs> Zulu boys in South Africa. Um, they have a fighting technique. Uh, this is coming back to the point we're on. Okay? They have a fighting technique which requires that all the men be right-handed because you have a, a small shield in one hand with a like, long stick coming out of it and a spear in the right hand, so left, left arm and right hand. Um, and we were visiting South Africa with some friends, we were staying with some friends years and years ago, and we went to this to meet this, these Zulu people at, a, at a, a village where they, they still lived and they welcomed tourists coming. They wanted to share their way of life. And I asked the Zulu guide, I said, so it seems that your way of fighting requires all the boys to be right-handed. He said, yes. I said, so what do you do if you have a boy who's... Le- what, what would you have done back in the day if you had a boy who was left-handed? And he said, ah, we would persuade him to be right-handed. <laughs> and I, I looked, I, what do you mean? Well, maybe we would put his hand in the fire. He just, he just said that. Victim. Right. And what would you want to say? You want to say to him the same thing you want to say to Aaron. You say you're making your left-handed joke. There we are. That came back to bite you, didn't it, right? <laughs> you're at least you're not a left-handed Zulu from the late 19th century because then you really would have been. So all those things. You know what the things are that are in your mind where you think, I I wish my life had not turned out like this. Don't burst into tears, all of you, okay? Don't become a victim. 
so can you see what I'm saying, Tim? It's not that's the solution. It's just is that the perspective that we need to adopt, yeah? I, I look at the, the verse 16, it just dawned on me. It says, I saw it as a son. Maybe it's my translation. In the place of judgment. Well, you don't go to the place of judgment normally because you've got a good person. Right, right, yeah. So, so something has happened that brought you to the, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. the point of the place of judgment, and then you yes. take the rest of it from there. Yes. Uh, speaking about going to the place of judgment, of course, uh, can you think of anybody who was entirely a victim of some other people's ungodliness and suffered greatly for it. Uh, thank you. <laughs> we, we might as well say his name. So this chapter is fascinating because it is a depiction of the experience of Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 16. In the place of judgment. You know, in um, the, the stone pavement in Luke's gospel where, 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 um, where Pilate sat, Gabbatha, it means... The, the seat of judgment, I think. How's that? I forget the exact phrase. I, I might have got that wrong. Scratch that. If you, if, but don't take my word for it. Go and check. But Jesus goes to the place of judgment and he finds this wicked man and all these wicked leaders of his own people whom he came to save. Yeah, you're right. I had a comment from Azuma. Wait, Nan? Yeah. Hey, Nan. <laughs> Yeah. Poor and downtrodden, only for God to answer that He is going to punish the oppressors by the hand of the oppressors that are even more fierce than the mm. I like how the commentary says that Habakkuk appears to know which is more to be lamented: the sin or the punishment of it. Yes. Both many harmless good people who are very great. Yeah, that's very very shrewd. Thank you, Nan. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, um, is um, he's victim twice because of the wickedness of his own people and then the Lord says don't worry I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to smash the entire nation to pieces and Habakkuk says like that's your solution <laughs> they're even worse yeah. so just Tim's question raises this point doesn't it well, what is the solution the solution isn't a thing that takes the problem away the solution is the perspective from which you're able to deal with the problem by the grace of the one who really is a victim. Like there's only ever been one pure victim in the whole of human history, and that's Jesus. And you're his baby brother, male or female brother. Yeah, go ahead, Mr. Barnes. Yeah, definitely, go on. Precisely. I think that's right. God is saying, in, in some bizarre way, um, yeah, there's a time for a drunken father to chase his son around the house. And there's a time for that to be called to account. There's a time for a man to lose his job and be unemployed for eight months, to be on the verge of despair. 
and there's a time for him to finally find work. There's a time, f there must be a time for it because God has made that, those things to be. So. Reminds me of the, uh, God's response to Job. It's not really an answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who do you think you are, hey? Uh, Job is Job is another book that. Well, if you if you don't think Ecclesiastes is if you, if you've still got some emotional energy left at the end of Ecclesiastes, we could have a crack at Job if you like. Um, let, let me just. I mean, there's more things we should talk about here. I want to just highlight a few other bits and pieces. It's interesting, isn't it? End of verse 18. God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. And part of that is to do with we all go to the same place. But part of it is to do with the beastial behavior, the beast-like behavior. And, of course, it's not true that everything you do is just like what an animal would do. It's wisdom literature, remember? So it's, okay, what would be the thing that would be just like a beast at this point? It's that question to ask yourself, isn't it? How would a senseless animal respond? Because I don't want to do that. It's, we, we're, when men are transformed into beasts in Scripture, it's not good. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, it's a very... Normally you have... So in, in, in Scripture you have positive and negative archetypes of lots of different things. Like clothing, you have fine linen robes, or you have torn rags or sackcloth. And the positive ones are, this is ordered how life ought to be, and the negative ones are something's gone terribly wrong. Torn garments, mourning, um, uh, nakedness, you know, to do with poverty and vulnerability and so on. So you've got positive and negative archetypes. Well, what about positive and negative archetypes of beasts? Well, you have eagles and lions and lambs, and then you have seven-headed sea monsters with teeth that are like iron, You've got positive in Leviathan and snakes and dragons and monsters, distorted beasts. And that's what's in view here. We, we want to become like the lion or the lamb, not like the multi-headed, iron-toothed, head-crushing sea monster, for example. So I think, again, that's probably what's in... You know, men who become like beasts are like, like that. All right. Um, so there's that dose of realism and the perspective that we need to handle life wisely. Um, can you take any more? We've got 25 minutes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Up. Okay. Um, if I turn it up, bear with me one second. Hold on. How's that? Things I don't teach you at pastor school, right? Is that, is that, and, uh, yeah, that's fine. Thank you for asking. I don't want it to be inaudible. And my voice drops when I feel miserable. So I'm... We could tell. Yeah, no. Anyway, so the tears of the oppressed. No tears. Oh, sorry. Yeah, please go ahead, Teresa. In verse 18, God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. 
So God will help us to see it. Yes. So your, your suggestion is that God is actually trying to reveal to us what we are. I think that's right. When we are behaving like beasts, it's, it's, you know how sometimes you have that experience of looking back over something shameful that you've done? Exactly. So you look back and, and you have that kind of sober realization of quite, oh my goodness. And, and that's how bad it is. Yeah. So I think that is, there is something there. And it's interesting that the word to test, um, your translation has something like uh, reveal or, or manifest, I forget. Manifest, yes. Um, uh, you have the, the same double meaning elsewhere in Scripture. Um, things are tested by fire in the sense of they're revealed by fire. Straw is revealed to be straw by being tested. It just burns up. Gold is revealed to be gold, again, by being passed through the fire. It's tested in fire, and it's revealed. So testing and revealing are kind of connected ideas. And that takes off in a whole other direction, where being strained reveals who we really are. It was a very scary thought, because it could be that you just get revealed to be, verse 18, an animal. Which is horrible, isn't it? Yeah. So this, this then alerts you to it so that it doesn't prove to be the case. Because now you know. Yeah? So you just lost your job. And so you're a victim. So you're not going to react in the way that would make... That's just like how an animal would respond. You know, turning in on itself, feeling sorry for itself, lashing out at others, etc. It's not easy... The solution doesn't take away the difficulty. The solution reveals to you the danger and, then, and helps you to see a path forward. Okay. Um, chapter 4 takes us to the second scene, so to speak. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And obviously these scenes are related. And behold, I'm, I'm so glad that our Bible translations preserve what are actually slightly archaic words. The King James obviously does. My English Standard Version does. It is a, a, a dramatic and a significant word in Hebrew and in Greek, the Greek equivalent. It, it means like, whoa, wake up. Check this out. It's like, whoa, behold. It comes from the verb, in Greek it comes from the verb to see, like look. And it's designed to draw attention to something that's really salient. The tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. So we've, we've tried to untangle how we respond to wickedness in the place of justice. So now how are we going to respond to beholding the tears of the oppressed and there's no one to comfort them? I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who's not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. <laughs> there was a murmur of cynical laughter as I read that for the first time, because it is so kind. You can resonate with it, can't you? 
There's a certain kind of bitter, hyper-gritty realism. How do you, what are you supposed to do about that? Right. It inspires you to want to help those who can be helped. Yeah. And, of course, that's the... feels like a bottomless pit of problems, doesn't it? If you start to take... Suppose we decided we are going to try and solve the homeless problem in Fort Worth. I mean, I... <laughs> you, you, you want to be in charge? No, I thought that's what you said. Um, and it's very interesting. I, I'll tell you a story. I had a Mrs. Loki. I think you, you came up to mention it to me. There was a gentleman at the door, wasn't there? Who, who said his he said his house had burned down, and he didn't have anywhere to stay, and his daughters were at school, and he didn't have any money, and he needed. It was quite a specific number of dollars, less than a hundred, but more than ten to buy something, food, I think it was like $78 or something he needed. And so what, okay, there's a couple of options here. Well, one option is he's telling the absolute truth, in which case we, okay, good grief, where do you begin? But you certainly don't need $78. I mean, like, I mean it, so I recommended what I always recommend um, in those situations, which is, okay, we have a, a working relationship with a charity that we help to support called the Cornerstone Advice Network, and if you go there, then you'll be able to, et cetera. I, I started, the Cornerstone Advice Network, um, C-A-N, and they basically have quite a rigorous intake process whereby they try and find out lots about people so they can work out how to help them and, and so on and so forth and try and provide them with shelter and food and um, get them back on their feet, so to speak, so they're able to get back into society functioning properly again. And I got about halfway through this explanation and he started to dismiss my... I'm not interested in that. It takes far too long to go to those... Like, Okay, but I get it. I mean, if it's true, I can sympathise to a certain extent. But if it's true, $78 is not what you need. And if it's not true, then what you've got is somebody who has got to the point of desperation where they're willing to come and knock on the door of a church. And it must be humiliating to, to pretend to be that poor if, if you're not. And to pretend to need a handout of that kind. Now, I don't know whether it's true. We know for certain that some of the claims that are made by people who ask for support in that kind of situation are not true. They're demonstrably not true. But some are. But the problem is, how, how, how bad would your life have to be that that becomes the most attractive option for you? I don't know whether I feel more sorry for the people who genuinely have nothing or for the people who, who well, they could actually do something, but they've... Somehow what's happened is they've got to the position where this is the most appealing option. Can you imagine that? How, how miserable would you have to be? How few other options would you have to have? Behold the tears for the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Comfort in the strong sense of 
no one to exhort them, no one to grab them by the scruff of their neck, yank them onto their feet, say, right, you can stand. Yes, you can stand. Clunk right now. Come on, let's go and find a job. Let's go and find, let's, let's, oh, I can't. Yes, you can. Come on. Um, Whichever way, whether it's a genuine heartache story or not a genuine heartache story, it's actually heartache, isn't it? Is that a hand up, Uriah? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, the punctuation mark, the exclamation in verse 4. So Hebrew and Greek don't have punctuation in the original texts of the Bible. And in fact, <laughs> one, some, someday we'll talk, we'll talk about how the original manuscripts are written. Um, the Hebrew text was written without vowels. Go figure. And some Greek texts, not many people know this, but some Greek texts were written without vowels. They used all kinds of contractions. So, so well, what's happening here is it's not that there's a kind of Hebrew exclamation mark, whatever that would look like. This is an attempt to render into English the sense of the original. And although they don't use an exclamation mark to convey uh, emphasis and alarm or surprise or humor or whatever in Hebrew... They have other ways of conveying the same thing. And one of them is the kind of behold word, hine, at the start of the line. But I, and I haven't checked the syntax, but it, it's easy to imagine that uh, an expression like this could be composed in such a way that it's clearly a dramatic expression that warrants that. So I think that's what's going on. And it, and it draws attention to it. So you... you Teresa, you want to comfort people, right? We want to do that. And I raised the problem of homelessness in Fort Worth. And imagine if we lived in California. So then just try and figure that one out. And, and what you discover is that the, the problem is far too great for like a church to solve. We, we could empty the church's bank account into the pockets evenly distributed of all of the homeless people in Fort Worth and we would solve nothing at all. So what is, what is God going to do about this? Or what are we supposed to do about it? Does that, does that mean we do nothing? Like Because we can't fix it, give me some biblical paradigms. We, we can't fix Fort Worth like that. So what do we do then? Yeah. Well, Jesus didn't heal everybody, but he dealt with people one by one so that Cornerstone Assisted helps them as thoroughly as possible get on their feet and then that's good and then they can, you know as many people mm. as they can feasibly help but that's better than than giving a sandwich to everybody and not helping right. anybody to really overcome what brought them home okay so good we can support them and let them do what they do best right by right. financially supporting them okay good so th- there is a halfway house then between fix every problem now and do nothing, we can say, follow Jesus' example. It's really alarming in Luke 4. There are, there are sick people being brought to Jesus. Remember what he says? He says, I need to, I need to leave. I need, I need to go to the other towns. I need to go and preach. 
No, no, Jesus, you don't understand. You, 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 you could empty all the hospitals <laughs> of the entire Judean world. And you need to go and preach? He's like, yes. I'm going to leave people sick here so that I can go and preach over there. Do you realise that's in the Bible? It's in Luke chapter 4. Um, it's astonishing. What is that doing in the Bible? What it's doing is it, is it showing us um, well, a number of things about Jesus' ministry and, and priorities, but it's also showing us something about the relationship between the size of a problem and an, an inappropriate response to it. Jesus, the Son of God, thinks it's appropriate to fix some problems now, and everything will be fixed one day, and he'll do that too, but he leaves some things undone for the sake of another purpose that he has to keep in mind. And I think your, your example goes part of the way there, so, so just supporting something like Cornerstone Assistance Network. But I, I do think that we probably... There is that phrase, isn't there? Is it Galatians 6.10? Um, Don't neglect to do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. So it's, it's not like an, a kind of like... What would you say? It's not a biblical sanction to just, just help nice people whom you like. It doesn't say that. It says, especially those who are of the household of faith. What's significant about the household of faith is it provides a context where you can really properly help somebody. Now, if you're in a situation where you can really properly help them, are we going to really properly help them? Suppose somebody joined the church and they said, listen, I'm, I have a total of $74.14 and I am living in an apartment shared room and I need to pay um, $100 a week and the next payment is due tomorrow and I don't have the money. Please will you help me? Now, what's the solution to that? If you think the solution is to give them $100, think again. Because the problem is the trajectory. You see what I mean? We've got an economist at the back. And let's do the graph this way around, because then it's left to right for you. The problem is he's got into a position where he's got $74 left. What we need to do, if we're to help that young man, let's say young man, is to change the trajectory. How do you, get, how do you change a guy's trajectory? Well, we give him $150 a week forever. no. <laughs> Can you see, what you, right, what, what, is, what does he need? A job. Okay, so he might need to have somebody help him write a resume. What's a resume? That's where you put your academic qualifications. Oh, yeah, now about that. Yeah, I didn't really go to school. Okay, can you read? Mm, nearly. Excellent. That's a good start. Can you see what I mean? You get to the point and you realise why somebody has reached this position. Now, are we going to help? So it cuts both ways. I, I want to say simultaneously, we will not and cannot help everybody. And we mustn't feel guilty about not trying. And we absolutely must be all in with Galatians 6.10, household of faith. If somebody says, look, I, I'm, I want to follow Jesus. I am following Jesus. I want to be part of your church community. I'll be accountable. To, I want to be a member of the family here. I've made the same pledges as you have as a member. If you tell me I need to um, shape up, I'm going to do the very best I can. Please will you help me? At that point, I think we need to be all in helping that guy. 
So the tears of the oppressed, there's no one to help them. This is Solomon. Just sell some gold, Solomon. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't do it. But if it's your brother or your friend or your brother in Christ, or, then I think we, prob- we probably need to turn up the volume on the people who are close to us. I think. And I, th- I also think that this connects to some themes in eschatology where you know, God will give us the freedom back that we long for when we show that we are responsible with it. He, God will not take away the crippling tax regime associated with the welfare state until the church shows that a congregation of 300 can look after one person. If you do that, maybe we'll have an end to Bidenomics. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You just, you just, I think running it in reverse, the reason why we're in this mess is because of God's judgment upon a church that failed to discharge its responsibilities. Now, that's a biblical point. That's not, that is an attempt at historical interpretation of our times, but it is, it's a prophetic, it's a reading of the prophets where um, the Lord really cares for the poor. And so here's the, the best example I can think of. If when Israel, the people of Israel, failed to care for the poor, failed to look after them, failed to give them their share of the land of Israel, things like Naboth's vineyard being stolen from him, but the grinding the face of the poor and adding house to house and field to field, as as Isaiah says, and taking the land away from the poor, what's God going to do? Well, he will bring the Babylonians to take all the rich people and all the middle class people away to Babylon, and who who gets left in the land? The poor of the land get left behind. God will give the poor their inheritance. They'll get their land. And you'll either get it because you let them keep it and you sustain them in it, or he'll take it off you and smash you to pieces in Babylon, and then he'll give them the land. You get the same thing with um, offerings, actually. God will have the tithe. He'll either have it voluntarily, or he'll send locusts and just take it. But he'll get it, <laughs> one way or another. Um, so you better give it him. You know, otherwise, you know, don't blame him when the locusts come. So, so you re- rewind that in reverse. What are you supposed to do in order to avert that judgment from God? Do justice, seek righteousness, walk humbly before the Lord your God. And you just start, you start showing the Lord that you will discharge your responsibilities as a church, as a community of the people of God, Israel. And he'll give back the, the land completely out of left field. Like you get a change of, you know, the, the Persians kick out the Babylonians and they've got a different foreign, foreign policy and Cyrus just says, oh, you guys can go home now. <laughs> really? Or... You know, we just try for 50 years, we're praying about Roe v. Wade and we're trying to look after single mums in the church and we're doing an okay job, but not brilliant, but it's okay and we're not doing too badly. And then the Lord just says, okay, Dobbs, plink. Nobody saw that coming, did they? Two years ago, you would not have believed that would happen. And I think that's one of the hard things to grasp about eschatology when we're trying to live it out. If we will just do what we can... Leave the big things to the Lord, and he'll just do it unexpectedly out of left field. If we will care for this one young lady or this one struggling young man, 
we just do that for a couple of generations or for a couple of years. I don't know how long. And if everyone does, if all the churches just pitch in and do that, the Lord will take care of Capitol Hill or the Senate or whatever. So I think your, your point, Teresa, going back to what you said, we want to help, I think it's profoundly true. And I think it, it just really cuts home because when we have, what do we call it, a Jericho Road moment, that the Good Samaritan did not go around healing all of the people that all over the land of Judea, but he was tripping over this body on the sidewalk. So he thought, okay, I've got to help this guy. When we've got the body on the sidewalk phenomenon, the Galatians 6.10 phenomenon, uh, the household of faith phenomenon, I think we need to be all in there. Um, quarter past eight. We didn't get to the, um, the lonely man. Well, that's okay. Yeah, we can talk about that another time. Um, you all miserable enough yet? No? Good. You're getting the hang of it now, you see? Because remember, there's nothing better for a man to do than... So we, we somehow need to take all this, take a deep breath, remember to do it, and go home and thank the Lord for his kindness. And faithfulness means what? Uh, nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is from the hand of God. So go home, have a drink if you want, have a mug of hot chocolate if you prefer, have a good night's sleep, get to work tomorrow, and I'll see you Sunday. All right? Great. Let's pray. Merciful Father, thank you again for your honesty with us in unveiling for us the terrible complexity of the world that we live in. Uh, we ask that you'd help us to navigate the mist with wisdom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.